evening. Welcome, and um, I'm sure some might trickle in as we uh, begin, and that's fine. Let's go ahead and get started. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you and praise you for what you've done in sending your son into the world. Father, we ask as we come to your word this evening that you would give us wisdom and understanding. You would grant us light to understand your word, to understand the revelation that you have made known concerning yourself through the sending of your son, that we might be people who receive this revelation with faith, who believe it, who hold it fast all our days. May we be encouraged as we consider your word from John chapter 1, and as we consider the confession that Christians have held through the centuries concerning the person and work of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we last week completed studying um, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and in a sense it's going to feel like we're not really departing very far from that doctrine as we begin to study the doctrine of Christ. Um, The doctrine of the Trinity certainly will prove foundational as we think about Christ and his person and work. But here, what we're doing, um, in a sense, is really uh, focusing our our lenses, if you will. If you think of a camera, you can uh, zoom a camera in such a way where uh, certain aspects of the the, uh, frame are uh, in focus and other aspects of the frame are out of focus. And here, as we begin this particular study, it's as if we're going to zoom in our lens and, and focus our lens upon the Uh, the second person of the Trinity upon the Son of God as we consider his person and work. Now let me, uh, as I introduce this, uh, make a recommendation. Um, Stephen Wellam is a professor at Southern Seminary, one of my professors, and he has um, written a number of books on this very subject, but he's also, uh, his lectures on this subject are freely available through uh, over at the Gospel Coalition website. If you go and you find under Courses, uh, you can find there um, uh, the Person of Christ or, or something to that effect, God the Son Incarnate. And you can hear Stephen Wellam's lectures, 13 lectures on this subject. They're excellent, uh, far more uh, learned than I could, um, I could hope to deliver. And I do commend those um, if you have an interest and have the time uh, to view those lectures or to get his book, God the Son Incarnate. Um, there's a shorter one available through Crossway that's, uh, that's also available. In any case, let, let me introduce this subject. The fundamental question that's before us as we think about Christology, about the person of Christ, is that very question that Jesus posed to his disciples that we're going to consider Sunday morning from Luke chapter 9, that we've considered in Sunday school from Mark chapter 8, that we've looked at from Matthew 16 in previous studies. That simple question, who do you say that I am? At least that's the first question when we consider the doctrine of Christ. Who do we say that Jesus of Nazareth is? There's a second question that's equally fundamental and it follows from it. And it concerns his work. What it was necessary for him to do. We don't just consider the person of Christ, we consider the person and work of Christ. And it's what we begin to see in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke after Peter answers that question with that great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Matthew presents it. You are the Christ of God, as Luke presents it. 
After that, Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he must be, uh, be, be um, persecuted by the chief priests and the scribes, and that he must ultimately die on a cross and rise from the dead. And he shows this to them, predicting it repeatedly, showing them how it uh, figures importantly in their life and their ethics as disciples, as his, as his followers. And so here, in that, as we, we've seen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus is laying out who he is and what he came to accomplish. Now, when we think about that title that, uh, of that confession, that, that first part at least, that you are the Christ, here we're seeing, as we've spoken about in previous weeks, a title that is proper to a particular appointed man, that it is proper to Jesus' humanity, that he is a son of David, who will reign forever as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed son of David, who will reign forever in an everlasting kingdom. There, there's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we see that Jesus actually executes this office, not merely as a king, but in his threefold office as a prophet, priest, and king. But we also see that the uh, gospels, all four gospels, reveal much more than just that Jesus is an appointed man, that he is... Um, he's more than the son of David. And you're gonna, we're going to come to that in Luke. We've come to that a little bit in Matthew in our consideration. That along the way, as we come to the end of the gospel, Jesus poses that very difficult question to the Pharisees. How is it that David, writing the Spirit, quoting from Psalm 110, can call his son Lord? Right? There's, a, there's a difficult question that they're unable, unwilling to answer because of what it... Uh, uh, what it would mean to answer that correctly. And so the Gospels certainly point to uh, Jesus being more than just the Messiah, right? He's, he's not just an appointed man, but he's something more. That's what we're um, going to begin considering tonight. And we're going to do it by turning to John chapter 1. Ultimately, I'm going to make this claim, and it's, uh, I'm here I'm actually quoting Stephen Wellam uh, from his um, book and from his uh, um, from his lectures, that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son incarnate. Which I think for believers, for Christians, this sounds like a well-duh statement. And yet, we need to also wrestle, we're going to wrestle a little bit with how that's not so clear in our culture. How we need to actually learn as Christians to defend that, to hold that forth in an evangelistic way so that we can make that case to people in a society that is quite skeptical um, of supernatural claims and uh, would be quite skeptical of, skeptical of the claim that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, God the Son incarnate. That's the claim, though, that we find from Scripture. It's the claim that we're going to see particularly from John chapter 1 uh, this evening. We're going to consider what it means, what, what it is exactly that we are confessing when we affirm that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. So let me read... John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When we think about this text, and we're going to look more closely at the specific details of this text over this week and perhaps moving into next week, but we need to consider that we all approach this text with a particular worldview. Now here in our context as uh, believers in Christ, as people who've received God's word and believed it, we approach from a particular worldview that embraces Scripture as God's Word. But when we walk out those doors into our neighborhood and into our communities, most of our neighbors, most of the people that we come into contact with, are not going to look at the Bible and share the same intuitions. See, we approach with a foundational view of God that is rooted in monotheism that we've seen as we did our study of the Trinity, that God, in fact, is one. There is only one God. And we also observed in that study that he is transcendent, that he is distinct from the creation, that he, is, uh, that he transcends the creation, he, he transcends time, and he dwells in eternity. Uh, he has no beginning, he has no end. And so this world that we look at, the things that we touch, the things that we feel, these are not God. These are external to God. Believe it or not, there are... Uh, people who don't believe that, people who think that God is in everything and everywhere, and it's actually quite common in our own day, not just an ancient philosophy. But we hold to a monotheism that is rooted in Scripture that shows God to be transcendent. He is the God who is, who is self-existent. And we see a little bit of that in this text uh, that presents God as creator and presents the Word as creator. We also recognize that God is triune, that He is one being, one in essence, and yet he exists eternally as three persons in one essence, right? We've spoken at length about that and how it was made known to us in the sending of the Son and in the sending of the Holy Spirit. So we confess that God is eternally and forever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He did not become Father. He did not become Son. Son is not a designation that the, the second person of the Trinity took to himself at some point in history. He is the eternal Son of God. The Father is eternally the Father of the Son. And the Spirit, likewise, is eternally the Spirit. And there is a, there is a, uh, they're co-equal in, uh, in um, co-equal and co-eternal, as we confess, in their nature, sharing fully in the divine nature. And yet, we can distinguish the Father, the Son, and the Spirit through these relationships uh, that are proper to those names as Father, Son, and Spirit. We've talked about that again. And so we see that we come again 
with this worldview that sees God in this way, recognizes that God is one, that he is the only God, that he is triune, that he transcends the creation. We also come with a worldview that recognizes that he is holy. He is without, uh, as, as John puts it, remember in 1 John 1, 5 from our evening studies, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. As we follow the text from there, we see that John applies that in our life to how we are to live ethically, that we're to walk in the light, and this has to do with uh, confessing our sin and coming into the light with our sin. There's a recognition of God's holiness, of his perfection, of his, uh, the fact that he is um, uh, completely free from any stain of sin. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So we recognize God's holiness as we think about our foundational view of God. We recognize also his steadfast love. Again, John put it this way in John chapter 4, twice saying, God is love. And we can reflect on the uh, revelation that God made known of, of himself in the law over and over again. You think of when he revealed himself to Moses, and Moses said, uh, show me your glory. God said, I'll make all my goodness to pass before you, but you cannot see my face. And as he goes by, he says of himself, the Lord, the Lord, God of steadfast love and faithfulness, slow to anger, you know, showing mercy, and so on and so forth. And we, we hear that refrain in the Psalms again and again. We sing of his steadfast love. We sing of his faithfulness, you see. So these are things that we recognize concerning God uh, in, in terms of our perspective, our worldview, of the world in which we live, the one who has made it. But this is not the perspective that our culture brings to the subject. We live in a day and age when most people come with an assumption that is, we could describe as naturalistic. That all that exists is this material world, what you see and what you hear, and that you are nothing more than uh, you know, the matter that composes your body and the neurons and the, the electricity that fires up and down your neurons. That's all you are. That's the way that the world thinks. And in this particular view, there is no place for a transcendent God. Now, this is not just something that people think about in university settings, in academic settings. It filters into the culture. Stephen Wellham describes it like this. It's like diffusion or osmosis, right? Just like a plant draws nutrients through a process of osmosis from the soil. It doesn't eat. It doesn't drink. It just draws in those nutrients. Or just as, um, you know, uh, you drive by the uh, paper mill and you smell the foul, foul odor, it diffuses through the atmosphere and you can smell it further and further apart until it diffuses enough that you can no longer smell its lingering effects. That kind, this kind of naturalism, which has been around for some uh, nearly 300 years, seeps into the culture so that when you meet someone on the street, they don't have to have studied um, the philosophy of 19th century um, German philosophers, they just have a kind of skepticism towards any claim of supernatural things. So that, that leads also to a, um, a skepticism concerning the claims that we make concerning Christ, concerning his person. In the early church, the biggest problem that they faced when it came to who is Christ was the challenge that, uh, at least the first challenge they faced, was the um, denial that he is truly man. There were a lot of people who would say that, yeah, he's God. At least in some qualified sense, they might acknowledge that. Whether he was, uh, they, they thought he was deity in a lesser sense than the Father, or fully equal with the Father in some way. 
but they doubted that he really and truly became a man. And so you have all sorts of variations on this. You have people who said, well, he only seemed to be a man, or he only uh, you know, took control of a, a, a person's body, a man's body, but he was not really one who became man. That was their problem in their culture. In our culture, it's more the opposite. People have no trouble believing that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who existed. They have a lot of trouble believing that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son who became incarnate. They have a lot of trouble believing that Jesus did things in history like we will see in the book of John. These signs that are described again and again throughout the Gospel of John, whereby he made known his glory, glory as of from the Father. So we have to be uh, aware of that. When you walk down the street, you're going to meet people, and if, if you share the gospel with someone, you're going to meet people who come with these kinds of objections, with this basic skepticism concerning um, the claims that we make concerning Christ. There's also an issue uh, related to some of these things, or it's kind of come from some of these things which we could call pluralism. Pluralism is... Um, it's, it's really well represented in this phrase that you all know. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Or you do you. Those kinds of phrases reflect a pluralistic perspective. Where I'm just telling you that uh, truth is relative. It depends upon uh, your own experiences and what you, what you know, uh, what, what, what you prefer to believe. It doesn't really matter. All roads lead to the same place in a religious sense, is what the world would believe. And of course, that's not the biblical worldview. That's not what we hold forth as Christians. But we need to be aware that that's going to be the default view, along with that, that kind of skeptical, naturalistic view. You're going to have a pluralistic view. So, for instance, I, some years ago, I was talking with um, some colleagues, and they asked me what I thought about people who'd never heard the gospel. Uh, they didn't quite phrase it like that, but never heard the message of the Bible. I told them that uh, one must hear in order to believe. As we read in Romans chapter 8, how can they believe if they have not heard? And I explained that view. Um, I didn't get very far before they said they thought I was pretty bigoted. Pretty, um, it was a pretty terrible thing for me to think. I kind of ended the conversation there. But they had embraced a default pluralism, right? Where it would be wrong, it would be, um, it would be a cruel thing to suggest that there is one who can claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And yet that's what we're going to read when we come to it in John's Gospel. That's the very thing that Jesus, in fact, claimed. So these are challenges that we face. We, we, we come into a world that has a very different worldview than we have. So what do we do? How do we uh, respond to that worldview? I, I, I really do think Stephen Wellam's right when he argues that we need to strive to reshape the worldviews of others according to the biblical story, the whole biblical narrative, as we share the gospel. We need to frame the gospel in the context of all that God has shown. It doesn't, doesn't mean we have to sit down and have a, uh, a read through Genesis Revelation in order to get through to them. But it does help to situate what we're saying in the big picture of what God has made known. And, um, you may have seen videos, for instance, of missionaries who uh, go to tribes in, say, Papua New Guinea, and they want to share the gospel. And, uh, but these people have a completely different worldview. So what do they do? They spend a long time 
telling them the biblical narrative, starting from creation and moving all the way through the Old Testament. Not every single detail of the Old Testament, but they want to establish that basic framework the same way you might do with children in Sunday school so that they are prepared when, you con when they come to the gospel narratives and they unfold the gospel of Mark or of John. They, they, they present this narrative to these, um, these tribal people that they are prepared. They have the, a worldview in place. Uh, at least they, they, they're familiar with that competing worldview that the Bible gives us. And it's in place, and they're ready. They're, they're able to understand that proclamation um, of, uh, of Christ. Um, and of course, as we always see, and we see testified here in John chapter 1, some will respond, and some will not respond. Well, turning more closely to this passage then, um, I, I think that one, one of the things that I find so helpful about the prologue of John's gospel is a lot of those features that I talked about are here. This text is rooted in the biblical story. It's rooted in the big picture of, um, of all of Scripture. It speaks to um, the relationship of, um, not, not only the relationship of the one who John calls the Word to God the Father, but also the relationship of the Word to creation. And there we find our root, our anchor in Genesis 1, and his uh, relation to uh, the prophets, really represented by John the Baptist, particularly, excuse me, and Moses as well, who comes into the scene in uh, this the final four verses here. Um, he presents him in relation to God's covenants, um, and we'll come to that again in verse 14 through 18. We'll see how that, that is there. But John does um, present the person of Christ referring to him at first as the word um, in relation to that big picture. So let's look closely, and let me ask you to make observations as we look at these, starting with these first, um, first few verses, the, uh, verses 1 through 5 we'll take. Um, what do you know, in fact, just right in there in verse 1, that um, calls your attention to something in the biblical narrative? In the beginning, absolutely. You read that, those words, in the beginning, and you ought to think Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, here we have something that is prior to the uh, creation of heaven and earth. In the beginning, not strictly speaking a beginning of the word, but there's something that already is true and always has been. He says, in the beginning was the word. It's an interesting word. Uh, pardon the pun, to use to refer to um, one who he'll ultimately introduce as uh, the Christ, as Jesus, as the Son of God. But here he refers to him as the Word. Let me quote from Don Carson's um, commentary on this subject. He writes, God's Word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that Word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. What Carson is saying is that if you go back through the Old Testament, and you just even reflect on the, the creation narrative, how does God make the world? He says, he speaks, let there be light. And it's so. And uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm uh, 33, for instance, will reflect on this and, in fact, personify um, this concept. Let me uh, read Psalm 33, 6 for you. 
here in this text, we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. You see that same uh, concept that uh, you can see there in Genesis 1-3, called to mind in Psalm 33. And uh, frequently, uh, we don't need to look at every single instance, but there are many, many places throughout the Old Testament where the word of the Lord comes with this kind of power that is uh, creative, that is revelatory, that is saving. And so it's an appropriate term for John to use here when he begins to refer to the person of Christ. He is the word. What does he say about the word? Let's observe the uh, ways in which he describes him. Just go, anyone go ahead and, and shout it out. What does John say about the word? He's with God. So we immediately have, there is a distinction. That distinction is indicated by his being with God. But there's also a... Uh, in the same, at the same time as there's a distinction, there's a unity that's indicated. How is, how is that indicated here in this text? He, yeah, he was God. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so as we, reflected, uh, we reflect on what we learned of the doctrine of the Trinity, we think about the way in which we understand uh, the Son of God as being fully God. I mean, what's the distinction? How do we distinguish Son from the Father. The Son is the one who is eternally begotten. He is the only begotten Son. We'll see that, that language here in this text when we come to, come to it. I'll explain the, um, uh, the translation. But uh, he's the only begotten Son, right? The Father is, we never describe the Father as begotten. He is the begetter. In every other way, we, the, what we can say of the Father, we say of the Son. Right? The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Father has life in himself. The Son has life in himself. And when we come to John 5 and we, we, we read uh, Jesus' discourse concerning um, receiving life, we're going to see that he has life in himself just as the Father has life in himself, but it's as a grant. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And that corresponds to that quality of begottenness, right? That, that, that would make sense then when we think about the relationship between father and son. We never read something in the reverse where the son grants the father to have life in himself. Doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work that way. We never read something like the son sent the father. It's always the father sending the son, you see. That relationship is very consistent um, and it reflects that, uh, that distinction that we see in uh, the fact that he's the only begotten son. Apart from that, though, in terms of attributes, the eternal, uh, we think of Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance, the exact imprint of his nature. Right. What we can say of the Father, in terms of his attributes, in terms of his, uh, his quali uh, 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 of his divine nature, we can say the same of the Son. So there's distinction, but there's also unity. Now, I think that you know, uh, if you've ever had any conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, you know that they would uh, they key on this text and they, they argue that the translation is all wrong and that we should read it as the word was a God or the word was divine or something like that. Um, uh, rather than trying to go into the Greek uh, of that, which I think would, is just not going to be uh, fruitful right now for us, um, 
I'll, I will simply say that that's a misunderstanding of the way that the Greek language works. There's a lack of an article. Uh, articles in, in grammar, the word the. Well, in English, we've got an indefinite article, a god, and definite article, the god. And Greek doesn't have that. They just have the article or there's no article. It's not there. But when it's not there, it doesn't always indicate a lack of definiteness. But if you... Um, if you treat uh, language as if it's, you know, you can just plug and play and it just automatically translates to your language exactly the way you think it should, then you can see how that could easily corrupt. But I've shared this with some of you in the past. There's an easier way, I think, to show that, um, that what, the, what a Jehovah's Witness or others, you go back to the early church and the Arians, what they alleged concerning the Son is wrong. You just look down in verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So let my right hand here represent all things that are made. And let my left hand here represent all things that were not made. What, what's on the left hand? The all things that are not made. What goes here? According to John 1, 3. God and the Word. And all, everything else is here. You, me, the chairs, the, all, all matter in the universe. All... Uh, Things visible and invisible, angels, demons, and so on. They're in the things that were made. Here's the things that were not made. It's a logical impossibility for the word to be both made and not made in the category. You see what I'm saying is, uh, let's just move past verse 1 of chapter 1 and keep reading, and we'll see that the allegation just falls apart. It doesn't work. No, the, Jesus Christ, the word, is the one who is eternal. He is from the beginning. He is not. He has no beginning and no end. And that's very clear when we read the uh, text in its entirety, and when we consider um, uh, all that John has to say as we as the gospel unfolds. But also the entirety of the New Testament witness, thinking on Hebrews one, thinking Colossians chapter one, and so on and so forth. So when you think, if you if you meet those kinds of objections. Uh, they don't just come from Jehovah's Witnesses. They come from many. Sometimes they come from biblical scholars. You meet those objections. Um, uh, one way to respond to them is by drawing into the witness more than just the one verse. You know, when you when we bring it all together, as we've just done, even just verse 3 alongside verse 1, we see that it starts to break down. So we do see, though, we're, we're seeing that what we can say of the word is that things that we say of God, we say also of the word. He is the creator of all things. He himself is uncreated. We look down in verse 4 and we see that in him was life. This is very much something that we will say only of God. You, you have life in yourself in a sense. But it's not a life that you can communicate to creatures that you can freely give. And it's not a life that's going to last, right? You're, you're going to die. Me too. But God has life in himself in the sense that he is self-existent, in the sense that he is life-giving, in the sense that he can communicate life to those creatures that he makes. We think of the way that he, when he made Adam, he breathed into him, to the, into him the breath of life, and so Adam became a living being, right? God is the self-existent one who he cannot die, and uh, he has life in himself. And here we say the same thing of the word, in him was life. 
The life, moreover, was the light of men. I think here that the, the idea is very much on the, um, the re revelatory nature of uh, the word, that the word is the one who comes and gives light. Uh, if you think again to, to 1 John uh, and the way he writes about, um, about God in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we heard from him, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And how does he apply them in the life of these early Christians? If we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in the darkness, we lie. If we uh, walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with him, right? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, forgive me, but you see the sense is that there's a, there's a, there's, um, there's a revelatory quality to it. There's a quality relating to um, his perfection, his moral perfection. Uh, the, the revelatory sense there in 1 John 1 has to do with revealing uh, sin and revealing wickedness and making that kind of no, you know making that known and we ought to come into the light that's the ethical um, call by becoming confessors of our sin right by not seeking to hide it or not see, seeking to call uh, darkness light call sin uh, good but in Christ is not only life, but he, he, I'm sorry, in him is life, and that life is the light of men, John is saying. What, what I'm getting at here is simply that, once again, we see in the word, those things which are proper to say of God are also proper to say of him. I think it's, I, I, I probably should stop belaboring the point, but it's very clear from the outset of John's gospel. The one he's presenting as the word, as uh, the light of men, is one who is, in fact, fully God, as we, uh, as we confess. And this light, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There you can also hear hints of that, uh, that language from 1 John 1, 5. In him was, uh, I'm sorry, uh, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It's not just light that uh, is in competition. Think of this in contrast to a dualistic view of, the, of, of a worldview, where you see... Um, kind of yin and yang, good and evil, and this kind of ever, uh, this eternal competition, equal competition, that's not the biblical worldview. Light is unconquered. God's light is unconquered by the darkness. Now, all of these things are going to, these ideas are going to become clearer as John's gospel unfolds. One of the things about reading the Bible is that you, you uh, read and then you reread, right? So, your first read through first uh, through John chapter one, you say, "Well, this is beautiful imagery, beautiful figurative language in some cases, perhaps, and you're not quite sure what it all means, but it's a very beautiful uh, passage." Then you come, you go through the rest of John's gospel, and you see how prominent the ideas of light and darkness are. And you see how certain uh, individuals are described in ways where they tend towards the light or they tend towards the darkness, right? And you can think of um, you think of bugs in your home. Sometimes you turn on the light and uh, the beetles scurry away or the, uh, the, the whatever it is, the different kinds of bugs, they scurry away into the wall. And sometimes you turn on the light and the flies they, and the, the moths, they, they're attracted to it, right? Well, in John's Gospel, you can think of different people in the same way. Some people, they, uh, they, they do their deeds under the cover of night. They scurry away from the light. Some people, the light shines and they are drawn to it. Right? But this is, of course, the light of Christ. Uh, but you can see then John will situate certain um, 
certain events in, in relationship to these things. So, for example, when Judas goes out to betray Christ, John just says, and it was night. Why? Perhaps he's giving a suggestion about Judas's um, particular inner character and, and his relationship to the light. In any case, the light shines in the darkness, and you'll, we'll see how the darkness then um, speaks to a lot of the evil and a lot of the, the, those who oppose Christ in John's gospel, and yet the darkness has not overcome it. So I think on that, on that reread, after we reflect on what we've uh, gone through in John's gospel, we come back to that and we can say, yes, that's right, amen. Um, the darkness, in, in spite of its great uh, opposition to Christ, did not overcome him. Well, let's, uh, time is, is running out, but let's try to push on to verse 8, and then we'll continue uh, with this study next week. Uh, but here, we continue to read, that now jo uh, John introduces another John. He turns his attention from the word for a moment to introduce us to a particular man. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we are introduced to John, and we're going to see more of him in this gospel. But uh, John is, is uh, keen for us to know a few things about John the Baptist. Uh, some things that are straightforward that we might just gloss over. They seem uh, rather ordinary. First of all, that he's a man. Now, I want to say something. This is going to be, I think, important. Because as we think about the person of Christ, we do need to consider uh, the incarnation. And we're going to, as we come to um, verse 14 especially, we're going to consider that in great detail. But when we think about, um, when we look at John's gospel, we're going to see that he, uh, he, he does put Jesus in, um, in contrast with mankind. He, Jesus comes to share fully in our nature as he takes on flesh. But there's also a clear distinction between him and man. Let me just give you an example of that. At the end of chapter 2, this is after Jesus has cleansed the temple. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. I'm in verse 23, I'm sorry, of chapter 2. Going to 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Right? Now that word entrusted is, um, the, the translation is right. It's hard in English to see the connection. Believed and entrusted are the same form. Uh, you, know, to, you, can see, you can think about that, the meaning, right? If I believe you, I trust you. Right? If I entrust myself to you, I'm trusting my, you know, something intimate, something personal to you. So that's the, uh, that's the sense, but there's a connection here. Many believe in Jesus, but Jesus does not trust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's something in man that's not in him. There's some quality about mankind generally that's not true of him. And that has to do with, uh, we can just summarize it under that one heading, sin. So one, that's the key difference between us and Christ. And as he took on flesh and became like us, he um, did not have a sinful nature. He did not himself have any sin in his life, 
He did not have our sinful nature. In every other way, he is in our likeness, in our weakness, our humanity. Well, John's going to do this throughout the gospel where he uh, draws these contrasts between Jesus and mankind. And usually it has a general and a particular aspect to it. So you can see right after what I just read, the very beginning of chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He has this way of introducing a particular individual man uh, out of this general group. And there's the contrast that then we'll obtain. Here in uh, the prologue in First John, I'm sorry, in John chapter 1, we, have a part, we start with the specific man, the one sent from God, who is John. And in verse 9, what we'll come to next week, we're going to come to man more generally and how they've responded to, um, responded to the true light in the world. But here we're told about John. He's sent from God. His name is John. He came as a witness. And his, his, his purpose in bearing witness was to bear witness about the light, about the one who is the light, the word, the one in whom life is. And there's a purpose for that so that all might believe through him. All might believe through him. Later on, we're going to see that same uh, similar language uh, with respect to the word, except it's not believing through him at that point in verse 12. It's believing in him, believing in his name. But here, John came with this purpose that those uh, who uh, received his witness, those who heard it, should believe through him. But John wants to be clear. This John, John the Baptist, is not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. So there is a, uh, as we close that up and just kind of summarize what we're seeing here in John chapter 1, um, before we move into the incarnation and think about the humanity of Christ, John is certainly uh, and, and unequivocally establishing the deity of Christ. So we think about that central thesis when we talk about the person of Christ. Who do I say that he is? When I say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what am I confessing? Beginning with that confession that he is God the Son. For I say that he is God the Son incarnate, saying that he is God the Son. He's not the Son in the sense that David was the Son of God in a positional way that where, where he, uh, he's regarded as a son, as a king. He's not the Son in, a sense that, in the same sense that we become sons as adopted sons. In, um, in Paul's writings, he will always be very careful to distinguish between the sonship of Christ and our sonship using that language of adoption. You remember that from Galatians 4. I'll read that because it, Galatians 4, in a, in a nutshell, says a lot of the same things as John chapter 1. In 4, I think it's verses 5 and 6. But uh, Paul's practice is to use this language of adoption. So in Galatians 4, 4, and five, actually. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you see that language of sonship, but there's a clear distinction between the way in which we uh, experience that sonship. Ours is a, we come into that relationship through adoption in Paul's language. In John's language, in his writings, he draws the, draws the distinction by using the language of son versus children. Son is a term he applies to Christ. Children, different set of uh, words. Children is a term he uses to apply to God's people. We are children in a different sense. 
He is the eternally begotten Son. You see that language. We'll come to that next week in verse 14 and 18. But um, uh, so we, we begin with this very clear, at the, in the end, uh, presentation of one who, um, in history, known as Jesus of Nazareth, he is, in fact, God the Son. It's a really crucial um, confession of the Christian faith. And uh, I, I do want all of us to be able to at least in some way present, why is it that I believe that? How have I come to know that? How does Scripture, in fact, make that case? So that's why we're embarking on this study. Let me ask um, uh, if there are any questions or comments um, on this uh, subject before we close and spend some time in prayer. Yes? Yeah, it's a helpful. It's helpful to, to, I think, in our minds to, yeah, to kind of, op- you know, help people to open their mind to to uh, think about it a different way, and, and so, similar, just like getting people to think in terms of essence and person is, you know, one person existing in three. I'm, I'm sorry, three persons existing in one essence. One essence existing in three persons. Um, so that when someone says, oh, I, I, it's a logical impossibility, one can't be three. Well, you know, let's think of some other examples of where we can say that one can be three. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Thank you. So let me just chart it out briefly. We're going to, um, in the weeks to come, we'll, we'll finish looking at the prologue. And then we're, we're not going to do a full and complete study of John's gospel. Uh, that would take us uh, more than a year. And I know you've already done that over several years. Um, but rather to, to look um, uh, more broadly at a bigger picture, uh, focusing on some of, the, um, some of the ways in which John paints his portrait of Christ. Um, so as we finish the prologue, then we'll look at a bigger bigger picture view and zoom in at a few different points in the gospel to see uh, particularly his presentation of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Let me close in uh, prayer and then we'll uh, pray corporately as well. Father, we thank you for this time to gather. We thank you for your word. Um, And when we thank you for your word, Lord, we thank you for your son, who is your perfect revelation Thank you for the written word that you have given us as a testimony to his person and his work, both in the prophetic witness and in the attestation uh, through the apostles and your disciples, Lord. We thank you that we have such a clear revelation that we might believe. And we thank you, of course, that uh, you have granted us this faith by your great grace through the spirit uh, you have given us. Father, I pray for each man and woman here tonight, that they would be encouraged as they reflect upon uh, the person of Christ, they reflect upon the truths that we've 
considered from your word, they would be encouraged to trust him more and more, uh, knowing that though sometimes the darkness in our world seems quite great, nevertheless, he is the light uh, over which the darkness could never conquer. So we pray, O Lord, with gratitude in our hearts and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.